Our Father and our God, indeed, we have arrived here this morning with loads of concerns uh, weighing us down. And somebody said something about calling us to worship. And very honestly, that's the furthest thing from our minds right now. We're uh, concerned about the hassles that we're going to face uh, tomorrow morning. We have problems in our homes. We've got problems in our businesses. We've got problems in our health. We've got problems in our marriages. We've got problems in our souls. But Father, by the power and the might of the indwelling Spirit, would you permit us to set that aside for about the next 60 minutes so that we can fix on things eternal, so that we can remember who we are and whose we are, so that we can remember, O oh God, that this three score and ten is not all there is, that there's something far, far longer, far richer, far more uh, profound awaiting us. And I pray, Father, that in the light of eternity, you'll enable us to see what it is that we're facing. Father, we pray that you'll meet us around the Word, but we pray that you will meet us around the sacraments as well as we drink the blood and eat the flesh of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now take our gifts, Father, and use them to honor Him. We pray, of course, in His name. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, and before I tell you where to turn, let me mention a couple of things. Um, there is a word in the English language. Actually, it's a, it's a word in a lot of languages. In fact, you'll probably find it in every dictionary on the, in the, on the planet, a, a, a word that, that most men, perhaps all men, have heard before. It's the word manna. And, and even if you've never darkened the doors of the church, which you have, but uh, even if you haven't, uh, you've probably heard the word manna before. Uh, you, you may not know where it came from, nor even what it means, but uh, you've heard the word. People everywhere use the word manna, and, and it's used in various ways. It's a strange word. It's a word that means, etymologically, it means, what is it? Uh, it, it refers to a kind of food, of course, uh, that had never before been seen, and when seen for the first time, the people who saw it for the first time looked at it and said, what is it? Uh, in Hebrew, it is manhu or manna. And the story about manna is found in Exodus chapter 16. I want to spend five weeks looking at manna. But not so much at the stuff called manna, but the story that includes the giving of manna. It's a, it's a fascinating story, folks. And, and I think you'll be surprised at how many times that you're going to find it mentioned elsewhere in the Bible besides Exodus 16. I want to use it over five weeks. I want to use it this morning to teach. I want to use it the next two Sundays as, as a means by which of casting vision for us as a church. And then I want to use it as a communion meditation. And then finally, I want to use it as a display of grace. And that will be in October sometime. But uh, first, we need to read it. All of it. <laughs> it's fairly lengthy. So if you'll turn to Exodus 16, I want to read you, beginning at verse 1. I won't do this the other four weeks, but I want to read the story in its entirety uh, in Exodus 16, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. 
And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. When the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that, we, that, you, should, that you should complain against us? Also, Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let let every man gather it according to each man's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who had gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. 
let every man remain in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it. Lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came into it to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now is that a fascinating story or what? Guys, um, um, there is a... In a lot of ways, uh, if this were the only story that you knew in the whole Bible, you would have everything that you need to know to find your way to heaven. Uh, It's all in this story, and I want to show it to you over a period of five weeks. The gist of the story can be found in the first four verses. I want to discuss the first four verses with you this morning, and we won't read the whole story every all five Sundays. In fact, that's the only time we'll read the whole thing. But I want to discuss just the first four verses with you this morning, and I want to do that under two headings. First of all, the problem, and then secondly, the test. So we're going to look at first four verses. Now, the problem that you see in those first four verses is pretty easy uh, to spot. It's, it's fairly obvious. Um, Moses has got a bunch of unhappy customers on his hands. Um, this, is a, this is a leadership nightmare. He's got a whole pack of uh, people. Nobody's happy in the whole congregation. Now, their complaint in and of itself is bad enough. But um, this complaint in particular is exacerbated when you consider a couple of other things. First of all, it's not just a few of them. It's all of them. All of these people, the whole pack of them, are mumbling and grumbling and complaining. The second thing is, they've only been out there six weeks. It's not like it's been a lifetime of of struggling and and hard. They've only been out there six weeks. Thirdly, the the, the nature of the complaint is that, you know, um, we're not real happy about the way that God's dealing with us. I mean, uh, God didn't exactly meet our expectations as to having a good time. You know, I, I thought we were going to come out of Egypt and have ourselves a ball. And, and uh, you know, he didn't exactly uh, play in ball. The way we, in fact, I don't even like the way he's doing it. I'd rather, pick, I'd rather choose the way. Fourthly, uh, apparently these folks had forgotten their life in Egypt. It was only six weeks in, the, in, the, in arrears, uh, and they, but, but they'd forgotten. Remember how it all started? When Pharaoh said, ooh, boy, we got too many Jews in this country. We need to get rid of some of them. So every boy that is born, I want you to throw him in a river. Hey, that's nice, huh? That's how Moses, uh, you know, was put in a little basket and found by Pharaoh's doing all that business. Then he grows up. And, and uh, I mean, by that time, uh, Israel is under the cruel heel of the tyrant Pharaoh. They had forgotten all the, the whips and, and making those bricks, you remember? And then Pharaoh decided, you know, no more straw for you guys. You're a bunch of lazy bums. We need to get you out there working. They'd forgotten that. 
They'd forgotten about all the murder and the slavery and, and, and all the cruelty. Oh my, how selective is the memory, is it not? And then fifthly, not only have they forgotten their lives in Egypt, on top of all that, they had forgotten apparently what God had done right prior to and just after leaving Egypt. Oh my, do you remember those ten plagues? Ten plagues, and then the, the, the crowning plague was the Passover with, the, with all the firstborn in Egypt being killed. Remember that? And then they came out of there, and, and they, they faced the Red Sea, and, and there's the army of Egypt behind them, and God parts the Red Sea, and they walk through dry shod, and, and then it, it, Egypt tries that, and they get covered up, and the whole army's uh, drowned. Uh, they, they apparently forgot chapter 15, where they were needing some water, and God came through for them at Merah. And then, of course, there was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. You know, the cloud by day was to keep them cool, and the pillar of fire by night was to keep them warm. They'd forgotten all that. So here they are. Complaint. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I want to suggest to you that there could be no more egregious display of unbelief, of ingratitude, and rebellion than what you see right here. In the face of all that God had done, um, they complain. They throw complaint into the teeth of the goodness of God. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, the obvious application, the, uh, it would go something like this. You people stop that complaining. Maybe. Or maybe it would be something like this. Well, you know, there's a, there's the difficulty of, of, um, uh, forgetting the past and thinking that the present is really worse than the past. The, the present is always worse. That's irrational, but, uh, you know, that's the way we, that's the way we function. Um, Israel ha- had forgotten all those limitations of her past and the blessings of her present. Uh, she was free now from tyranny and, and from all that cruelty, but that was yesterday. I mean, what have you done for me today? Not to mention the fact that at this point, nobody's starving. Uh, you know, they, they don't have enough of what they define that they need, but nobody's starving. So here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. In one sense, the problem is complaining. In another sense, it's not complaining. Here's why. Tell me, what do you complain with? Do you complain with your eyes? Do you complain with your hands? Some might say, uh, oh, well, it's the mouth out of which the complaint comes. That's true. But tell me, is the mouth the origin of the complaint? No. What is? You see, ladies and gentlemen, the, the thing that shows up is the complaint. But that's not the problem. The problem is the heart. Gang, um, what you have here is a bunch of redeemed people uh, who have come out of Egypt by the strong hand of a delivering God, and yet what they brought with them was an untamed heart. And those things, those untamed hearts 
in the souls of the redeemed can really be ugly, can't they? Oh, I know for sure they can. I have personal experience. My. You know, um, Paul, later on in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Let nothing be done through grumbling or complaining. <laughs> now, guys, I heard somebody say once that if that was the only command in the Bible, forget the rest of those things. Forget them all. And there was only one command in the Bible, do nothing from grumbling or complaining. We would be so incredibly guilty. Why is that? It's the heart. Because that's the problem here, ladies and gentlemen. It's the heart. That's the problem with these people. That's the problem with these people. Gang, the anchor on the soul of the people of God is an untamed heart. This story's not about food. It's not about your stomach. This is not about food, folks. It's about our hearts. Exodus 16 is not concerned so much about how our stomachs are doing. It's concerning what's going on at the center of our beings, the heart. You know, guys, this is one of those stories, and this is what drew me to it, I guess, but, and the Bible is full of them, but it's one of those stories that allow me to confront real issues. You know, I could take this text and I could say, all right, folks, here's what the Bible says. Stop that complaining. But that's not the issue, is it? It's not the issue. The issue is something far more profound, far more internal, far more difficult. It's not what's coming out of my mouth. It's, it's my heart. That's what's on display here, ladies and gentlemen. Redeemed people with some untamed hearts. Ooh, my. You know any of those? Oh, I do. I stare one down every morning. So, guys, that's the, that's the problem that is in view in, in Exodus 16. And this is a story that is going to expose not the fact that we didn't, you know, obey this law or that law. The text is going to expose something far deeper than that, ladies and gentlemen. You ready for that? You know, if, if all we do is, is read this story and walk about, well, you know, we need to stop complaining so much. That's not my point, ladies and gentlemen. That would help, but it's never going to stop unless something else takes place at the center of our being. Hmm. Heart. Now, how does God respond to that? Well, we're told in verse four, in verse four, he responds with a test. This is a test. He says that in verse 4. You saw that? He says, um, uh, I will rain down bread. Not judgment, not fire, not brimstone. I'm going to rain down bread. 
But keep reading, ladies and gentlemen, because the issue is that as I do this, I'm going to address not the, uh, the, uh, the vacuum in your stomach. I'm going to address the vacuum in your heart. I'm going to respond to your untamed heart with grace. You people whose souls I just delivered through the blood of the Lamb, you still have a heart that needs some work, lots of work. It's almost as if God looked at his people and said, it is grace that has brought you safe thus far, but, uh, you know, it's going to take some more grace to see that you get safely home. Uh, I'm going to make, says God, this wonderful provision. By the way, did you notice how many times in the first 12 verses it said, and the Lord heard? Uh, Verse 12, I have heard their complaints. There's a listening ear, ladies and gentlemen. But you see how he responds. I'm going to respond with abundant provision for them. This miraculous display of grace, but woven into it, embedded within it. All this wonderful provision that I'm making, embedded within that provision, is a multifaceted test. I'm going to give you angel bread. David calls it angel bread in Psalm 78. I'm going to give you some angel bread, and by my so doing, you're going to enter a test. I'm going to provide for all of your needs. But when I do, inside of it, inside of that provision, is a test. I am going to give you everything that you need. But by my so doing, you will undergo a test. I want to spend the rest of my time, it's not much, ten minutes. I want to show you how what a passing grade would look like if we were to pass this test. This one. What would it look like, ladies and gentlemen, is at, when we enter this test, what would a good score look like? Because remember, ladies and gentlemen, the goal is not to fill their stomachs. The goal is to address something that's going on in their hearts. I got a test for you guys. <laughs> and I'm aiming not at your stomach. I ain't aiming down here. I'm aiming up here. So what would it look like, ladies and gentlemen? If I were to pass the test, well, the uh, the most obvious is uh, one of the things that it would look like is that I would be obedient. Uh, you, you know, guys, yes, it talks about obedience. Uh, um, uh, for instance, and we're going to look at this next week, but this manna, uh, when God gave it, there were rules as to how it, was, how it was to be gathered, how it was to be consumed. And I'm going to watch out to see if you're, you know, don't go out on the Sabbath. Remember that? And I'm going to watch to see if you're obedient. That's easy. Not so much easy to obey, but easy to recognize uh, what's expected of me. But ladies and gentlemen, the real test. The real test is far more complex than just obedience. God turns the wilderness into a classroom. And the goal of all these instructions is that heart of yours. So that if I'm going to pass, 
if I'm going to look, if I'm going to make a good grade on this test, it's going to require more than my external obedience. The really good scores, ladies and gentlemen, would be ones that after I finish the test, that my heart would be different. The really good score will be one that produces somebody who knows that I can be counted on to provide all of your needs. The really good score would be one where somebody rests knowing that God will provide. The really good score would be one where people live out the rest of their lives knowing that God can be trusted. Their food is gone. That is what they brought out of Egypt. The wilderness doesn't produce anything edible. They, they didn't grow that stuff. They couldn't manufacture it. And so they sit out there and they pine for those pots and they go, Oh, I wish I had those pots back in Egypt. Boy, oh, I had lots of meat over there. Wish I had that. You know, because this God that we're following, He can't be trusted. I mean, He might provide for us today, but what about tomorrow? Ah, oh, what about the next day and the next and the next and the next? Can he be trusted? You know, guys, there were two million people that came out of Egypt. We are told uh, that, a, that there was to be an omer per person. An omer is about six pints. That means 12 million pints per day or about 9 million pounds or 4,500 tons of food every day. If I had 10 trains with 30 cars per train, each one would have to carry 15 tons of bread every day for 40 years. That's over a million pounds of food a day, excuse me, a year for 40 years. And don't forget that this is a gift being bestowed on complaining people. Because... The issue is the heart. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when I, when I read this story, the thing that alarmed me the most was not what was present, the complaint. The thing that alarmed me the most was what was absent, joy. Is nobody excited by the fact that they just left the, the tyranny and the slavery of Egypt? I mean, my goodness, they're free now. They've been set free from all that cruel bondage. And nobody's dancing in the streets. My goodness, they are now free to, to go on to the promised land. But nobody throws a party. Why? Well, I think one of the things that robs joy from every believer is they're not really sure that God can be trusted. Because if you're going to pass this test, ladies and gentlemen, you come to the place where you are fully confident that my future is in good hands. Anybody been worrying lately? And thus had your joy robbed? Because you're wondering, how am I going to pay that bill how am I going to do this and that? 
my good buddy, one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the greatest sin among Christians is that they're not happy. These folks sure aren't. These folks aren't happy a bit. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to pass this test, what it's going to produce is obedience, yes, but it's going to produce a heart that learns to trust. And not simply that. There's one other feature that I want to suggest that would be true about those people who really pass this test, and that is that there would not simply be dependence, but there would be a contented dependence. That's, that's, that's the thing that I think that would make us pass this test nice. A, a dependence that's a contented dependence. You know, initially, when this stuff first showed up, these guys would say, well, it's pretty good stuff. God came through for us one more time. It's good stuff. Tastes pretty good. Kind of like a, you know, vanilla wafer or something. Tastes pretty good. But tell me this. How long do you think that lasted? This became the staple for the Hebrew diet over the next 40 years. How long do you think they say, ooh, this stuff tastes pretty good? Hmm? Oh, the monotony of daily manna for 40 years. Think about that. You know what's going on here? Here it is. God's faithfulness has blinded these people to God's faithfulness. There is such a regularity to his kindness. And we have grown accustomed to that grace. You know, the sun and the, 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 the seasons and the rain and the very air we breathe. And we call that Mother Nature. <laughs> you know, let there be a prolonged drought and so many people pray to Mother Nature. But all of these wonderful gifts, ladies and gentlemen, all designed to, to, uh, to uh, do a little bit of surgery on our hearts, which is to give us this, this reason for worship and service to God. All of this glorious provision that God has made for His people that is supposed to point all of us towards Him. It has come to the place that all of this wonderful provision bores us. How do you view the predictability and the regularity of your life? Is it blessing or boredom? The alarm goes off at the same time every morning and we drive the same car to the same office and we answer the same phone, we wash the same dishes and change the diapers on the same baby over and over. Nothing ever changes. I get tired of the old grind day after day. How often do you complain about how ordinary is your life? Do you find yourself wishing that you could have a little bit more thrill and a little more zest and a little bit of fun thrill life for you? And, and uh, like you can have a life that you see in the movies? Little uh, little novelty I need? Nothing ever unusual happens to me. Why can't my life be more exciting? Well, my friends, if you think getting out of bed early every morning is a bore then talk to somebody who can't get out of bed. Or better yet, talk to somebody who can't sleep. If you view your job as some kind of tiresome nuisance, then speak with somebody who can't find a job. If you find yourself wondering if you can stand to change another diaper, then talk to somebody who can't have children. 
My friend, my point is simply this regularity of, of kindnesses that God continues to pour on us is, is, is a gift. But nobody's dancing in the streets. You know, verse 4 is amazing because there's not one severe word in it. There's no punishment. Now. Now, the reason I say that is because this same situation recurs. It happens again in Numbers chapter 11, which is several years later. They did the same thing again, and God's response then was different than it was here. After years and years of God's faithfulness, and then these people pull the same stunt, he responds differently. In Numbers 11, he responds in judgment. I can only say that the test that began in Exodus 16 was failed by some of them. Let me close. Guys, um, after years and years and years, of God's faithfulness to us. How's the test going? You know, ladies and gentlemen, I said that uh, God turned the wilderness into a classroom. Well, you're in a classroom. It's a little burg called Germantown, Carterville. What you learning? How's the test going, huh? And in this... I don't know of many churches that have as much as we've got. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that that much is a very intricate, complicated, difficult, All that stuff you got. Where'd you get that? I know what you got. Same place I got mine. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very strange test we're in. Isn't this, isn't this unbelievable? Here's how God's going to test us. He's going to give us everything that we need and then some. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's a test. This is very difficult. My friend, all of the regularity of God's kindness to us, embedded within it, is a test. And I say to you, my friends, that abundance, like we've got Abundance has a way of exposing our hearts. You know, Israel's in a test. And so are we.
what the test is supposed to produce is a heart that's obedient, that trusts, and is content. How are you doing? Our Father, I do thank you for all of your kindnesses towards us. We are indeed a most blessed people. And yet, O oh God, uh, with each increasing blessing, there is a greater uh, stewardship. There is a greater complexity. There is a greater demand because to whom much has been given, much is required. And that's us. And I pray, Father, that you will remind us that you have heard that you have watched, that you are listening, that you are watching as we manage your abundance. Oh God, remind us that what we're eating, it came from heaven. What we're wearing, it came from heaven. What we've got is manna. And I pray, O oh God, that you'll be pleased as you watch us use it. Meet us now, Father, at this table and remind us of the cornerstone of our faith. Pray in Jesus' name.